whenever a culture declines, it gets harder and harder to speak the truth. Maybe that culture is a country. Maybe that culture is a workplace where you're working. Maybe that culture is a church. But to, as it declines, if you're going to speak the truth, it will cost you more. In my lifetime, I really don't recall a time like this where currently 62% of Americans are afraid to speak their mind about political issues. And no wonder, as Ann Applebaum wrote in The Atlantic right here in America right now, it's possible to meet people who have lost everything, jobs, money, friends, colleagues, after violating no laws, and sometimes no workplace rules either. Instead, they have broken, or are accused of having broken, social codes having to do with race or sex or personal behavior or even acceptable humor which may not have existed five years ago or maybe five months ago. Some have made egregious errors of judgment. Some have done nothing at all. It's not easy to tell. And she adds, yet Twitter is unforgiving. It is relentless. It doesn't check facts or provide context. This convicting and sentencing without due process or mercy should profoundly bother Americans. Well, many of uh, her examples in the article are professors who experience this. Uh, and one said, the phone stops ringing, people stop talking to you, you become toxic. But the same thing that ha can happen in a college or university also happens in the church, just in our own Anglican province. Some people fight against Todd Hunter, our bishop, because he ordains women to the priesthood. So he's labeled woke, and he's tweeted that he's not Anglican enough. Esau Macaulay writes on racial justice, and he gets branded a Marxist. Friends, we all live in such a time as this. Do you feel this? Yeah. A time when it is harder than ever for you or for me to do what God may be asking us to do. To say what God may be asking us to say. Because we know, do we not, there may be a real crisis to pay. How do you and I then find the courage to speak up when God is urging us to do so and to take action when he's urging us to do that. I don't know if God has even been lately stirring you to do something that is difficult for you and you've been thinking, la, 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 la. <laughs> well, thankfully, God does not leave us on our own. He does sometimes ask us to do hard things. But he always gives us his promises to give us what we need and to keep us going. And if you are scared tonight by whatever it is that God is asking you to do, then I hope you'll be strengthened by God's own promises. And there's no better person we could learn this from than the prophet named Jeremiah. God strengthens him with three specific words when he calls him. Uh, we're th this is the first of six weeks we'll be spending in Jeremiah. Jeremiah gets his own book in the Bible because unlike roughly 96% of the prophets, prophets, air quotes, of his time, he actually spoke the truth, the real truth, the hard truth. 
not the fake truth. Jeremiah does it, and he keeps on speaking it at great cost to himself. Let's see how God strengthens him and take strength for ourselves and whatever it is that we may be asked to say or do. The first way God strengthens him is he tells him, I appointed you. I appointed you. Jeremiah 1, verse 4, the word of the Lord came to me. This has not happened to him in his life before. The word of the Lord came to me. I wish he'd said more about how, what that was like. But notice, it came to me. It didn't come from me. It didn't come from inside me. It came from outside me. I didn't make it up. It's greater than I am. And when that word comes, I know that it has an authority over me. Has God spoken to you in such a way where you know what that's like? And here's what the Lord spoke. Before I formed you in the womb, Jeremiah, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you to do what? A prophet to the nations. God can say something like this to you, can he not? I knew you from before you were born. I set you apart. I appointed you to do such and such a thing with your life. Do you know what that is? Have you accepted it? Are you willing to go for that? In Jeremiah's case, that job is profit, but that is, unfortunately, a job nobody wants. And as soon as Jeremiah hears the word profit, he immediately tries to get out of it. It's like, oh, alas, sovereign Lord, it's just too bad that I don't know how to speak because I'm too young. As much as I'd like to, you know, I just can't do what you're asking me to do. Over the years in organizations I've worked in and in churches I've been a part of, I've noticed that people will do almost anything to get out of having to be the one who has the hard conversation with somebody. Have you noticed this? Yeah. Okay, like bosses will send out an email to every employee in the company, even though 99 out of 100 people are, not, are obeying the rules and are not uh, being a problem. Because nobody wants to sit down with the one person who is being a problem and say, this behavior is a problem. Would you please stop it? Right? And so they annoy and waste the time of 99 people who get that email and go, well, what's the big deal? I don't know. I always clean up my stuff in the lunchroom. Churches will form task forces and change their bylaws just because <laughs> nobody wants to tell the person the truth. But this is exactly the kind of job that God is saying, I've got you for you, Jeremiah. I'm appointing you to sit down with my people and tell them the hard truth. And nobody else wants that job. And Jeremiah knows it's not going to be an easy job. He, he grew up in a family of priests. He's been around the temple a lot. And he knows just how bad it's gotten. He knows he's going to have to bring words like this one, which he actually does bring later. The people of Judah have sinned before my very eyes, says the Lord. They've set up their abominable idols right in the temple that bears my name, defiling it. They've built pagan shrines at Topheth, which is the garbage dump outside Jerusalem. And there they burn their sons and daughters in the fire. I've never commanded such a horrible deed. It never even crossed my mind. 
So beware, for the time is coming, says the Lord, when they'll bury the bodies in the garbage dump until there's no more room for them. Who wants to have to say that? And so Jeremiah is only 17 right here, so he plays the I'm too young card. Alas, sovereign Lord, I don't know how to speak. I'm too young. But God's not having it. The Lord said to me, do not say I'm too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. I appointed you. Or in my paraphrase, nice try, but I conscripted you. Has God been asking you to do something and you're feeling like Jeremiah does? I'm scared. I can't do that. I'm the wrong person. Get somebody else. I had a small example of this once in my life. Karen's grandmother was very ill late in her life. And it, it seemed that she was nearing the end. And uh, she had been a churchgoer off and on, but so far as Karen and I knew, she didn't have a vibrant faith or trust in Christ. Nice lady in many ways, gifted in many ways, but really that wasn't her true of her. And for about a two-week period of time, I just kept feeling like God wanted me to say something to her. And I said, well, I can't do that. She's a very proper lady. I'm sure she'll take offense. And I don't want to offend her, especially when she's not feeling well. And besides, she has gone to church some, so I'm sure she doesn't, she's not going to be receptive to this. And besides, you know, Lord, I'm not really evangelistic at all, so I'm really not your God. And that's where I left it. And then um, I ran into a guy who uh, <laughs> is very evangelistic. And uh, I said to him, I said, hey, Dave, here's this impression I have about, about my wife's grandma called Lala, and, but she lives out in Maryland, so I'm sure I'm not the guy. And I'm not very evangelistic like you, so I know I'm not the guy, but I just didn't know what to do with it. Like, I'm thinking of trying to call somebody who lives near her to go and say something to her about the Lord. What do you think? He goes, I think you're the guy. <laughs> I was like, ah, no. <laughs> so I knew, I knew she'd always had a lot of confidence in doctors. And so I found a short article by a doctor saying, I often get asked by patients, if I don't make it through this procedure, um, you know, I'm worried, doc. And he'd say, well, you can be confident in your afterlife. And then he just wrote a very simple explanation of that. Very clear. So I sent it to her, and I said, Lala, uh, have somebody, her eyesight was pretty bad. I said, have somebody read this to you, and then I'd love to call you and talk to you about it. So I did, and uh, my, uh, I, then I called my mom, and I said, Mom, I... I would go in person, but I can't fly out there right now. Would you just go? I've sent her this article and just see what she thinks about it, okay? And then if she's able to take a call, I will call her. So uh, my mom went and said, uh, took her by the hand and said, hey, I see on your uh, bedstand here that you got this article from Kevin. He wanted to know, you know, did you have that read to you? And, do you, and she said yes. And do you know what that's about. He nodded yes. And she said, 
would you like to pray to be at peace with God and to commit yourself to him so you can know? And she nodded yes. And I was like, I'm, I know I only had a piece to the puzzle, but I'm so glad I did my piece. So here's my word to you from Jeremiah tonight. If God says, I appointed you, he appointed you. Okay. Second word, he strengthens him with, I'm with you and I will rescue you. Don't be afraid of them, God says. Don't be afraid. Notice he, do, he, <laughs> he doesn't, he sees what Jeremiah's real issue is, fear. So he says, don't be afraid. And here's why. For I'm with you and I will rescue you. In verse 18, he adds, I've made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall, which are about the three strongest things in Jeremiah's world. You will stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people. They will fight against you. God does not sugarcoat that. They're going to fight against you, Jeremiah, but will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you. So here's how the battle lines are being drawn. On one side is virtually everyone, the kings, the officials, the priests, and all the people. And over here on this side is going to be one scared young prophet and God. And God says, I like those odds. I'll be with you and I will rescue you. And that's exactly what happens. One time, they mob Jeremiah at the temple and are shouting, kill him, but God is with him and rescues him. Another time, they take his book and cut it apart piece by piece and throw it in the fire, but God is with him and rescues him, and he dictates another copy, which is why we even have it in our Bible today. They put him in jail, but God is with him and rescues him. They throw him down a cistern, hoping he'll sink in the mud and starve to death there, but God is with him and rescues him. One official who's got a heart comes and pulls him out. Whatever it is that God is asking you to do, it may not be easy. He tells Jeremiah, they're going to fight against you. But what he does promise is, if I send you, I'm with you. I will be with you. And until your appointed work is done. Third, he tells Jeremiah, I've put my words in your mouth. I would say he arms him. He resources him with everything he's going to need. Not only will God be with you and rescue you, he will give you his own divine resources that you will need to do what he's asked you to do. Verse 9, the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I've put my words in your mouth. It's your mouth, but it's going to be my words. And those words of God pack all the power of God. Remember, God speaks and all everything's created, right? So, and he says, here's what you're going to do with my powerful words in your mouth. I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. The words that God is resourcing Jeremiah with right here have the power to tear down idolatry, the power to build up holiness in a sick culture, the power to uproot arrogance among leaders, the power to plant repentance. He even has the power, his words do, God's words in his mouth, 
to bulldoze the largest building in the country, the temple. This building has been standing for hundreds of years. You know, it's 60 feet long, 30 feet wide, 45 feet high. It's massive. It dominates the landscape. And the temple's where God promised to dwell. So whenever a real prophet comes along and says, people, you got to change, or God will even bring down his own temple, they just laugh and ignore the person. So one day, Jeremiah is sent by God to stand at the temple's entrance. Now imagine those two enormous pillars of bronze. They're 27 feet high. That's the doorway, on either side of the doorway. And Jeremiah stands between those two, and here's what God tells him to say. Don't be fooled by those who promise you safety simply because the Lord's temple is here. They chant, the Lord's temple is here. The Lord's temple is here. But I will be merciful only if you stop your evil thoughts and deeds and start treating each other with justice. Only if you stop exploiting foreigners, orphans, and widows. Only if you stop your murdering. Only if you stop harming yourselves by worshiping idols. Then I'll let you stay in this land that I gave to your ancestors to keep forever. But don't be fooled into thinking that you will never suffer because the temple is here. That's a lie. Oh boy. And people hate what Jeremiah is saying. But you cannot escape from the word of God when it's been released like that. 41 years after Jeremiah speaks this out, the armies from Babylon surround Jerusalem, starve out the people, and burn the temple and the entire city into a pile of smoking rubble just like jeremiah said it turns out that when the word of god goes forth jeremiah shouldn't fear the people the people should fear jeremiah he may be young he may be scared but he has the authority of god now what does this mean for all of us i want to apply it two ways if i may bring this home first i want to offer a thought for the american church since Jeremiah spoke to God's people, I can't help but wonder what the true prophets of God would say to God's people today, his church in our land, let's say that. And actually, I think I might have some ideas. So I'm not a prophet, but I'll, I'll just offer my thought. So you can take this as you will. Three years ago is right about the time that Bill Hybels resigned from Willow Creek credibly accused of sexual harassment and abuse of power, when one of our members, Ted Olson, stood right here, and I believe he has a prophetic gift, and he was preaching a sermon, and he said this in the middle of his sermon about the American church. He said, Babylon is falling. I was struck by the weight of that word that came through him, and I've been pondering it ever since. And sure enough, down came Willow. Over the last two years, attendance dropped by 57%. Last month, they announced they're cutting 30% of their staff. Down came Harvest Leader James McDonald and other churches and other leaders, including some in our own Anglican contexts. Is it possible that God in our day is tearing down major pieces of the very American church that he himself built up? It some days feels like that to me. We may be living through part of what God said to in Jeremiah 45, what I've built, I'm about to wreck, and what I've planted, I'm about to rip up. And that is a hard word. I don't want to speak it. 
Y'all don't want to hear it. I know that. But from Jeremiah, I take this comfort. For those who repent, for those who turn their hearts to God, the same powerful words that are released that tear down will build up. After the tear down, God will build a new and better house. We may not live to see all of it, but we have faith. Now, let me turn and just speak a word to each one of us. Whatever your specific task from God, don't run from it. Don't try to wriggle out of it. Don't play the I'm too blank card. Instead, let God's promises strengthen you to do his will. I've appointed you. I'm with you and will rescue you. And I will put my words or whatever you need in you. As you and I obey, we'll be given the divine resources we need. And things will come down that need to come down. I don't know what it is that you're feeling the need to do. I don't know whether it's somebody has to talk with the sister-in-law. Somebody has to write that blog post. Somebody has to correct that employee. Somebody has to break the silence. But may God give you the strength to do it. In the late 1700s, English traders raided the African coast every year, captured 35 to 50,000 Africans, shipped them across the Atlantic, sold them into slavery, and it was a very lucrative business that a lot of powerful people depended on and made a lot of money from. As one person wrote then, the impossibility of doing without slaves in the West Indies will always prevent this traffic being dropped. It was a given. At the time, there was a young member of British Parliament, William Wilberforce, and in his own words, when he got to Parliament, for the first several years, he did nothing. He said, the only thing I cared about was my image. Yeah. But God started working on him, and he appointed him, and Wilberforce began to think over his life, and he began to feel really bad about how really vain and empty his life had been, how fruitless, and he repented. He had a spiritual rebirth, and he realized he wanted to fight against slavery. So in 1789, he and a, a friend, Thomas Clarkson, introduced 12 resolutions against the slave trade, only to be outmaneuvered on every single one on legal fine points and political machinations. When people realized that Wilberforce was not going to quit or let this issue die, people really came after him. They criticized, quote, the damnable doctrine of Wilberforce and his hypocritical allies. You get the idea. Two years later, John Wesley was lying on his deathbed, and he wrote this letter to Wilberforce, the last thing Wesley ever wrote, actually, and he said this, unless the divine power has raised you up, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that execrable villainy, which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature, unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, will vanish away before it. 
Well, encouraged by Wesley, Wilberforce kept going. He introduced a bill against the slave trade in 1791. It was defeated. He introduced a bill in 1792. It was voted down. He introduced a bill in 1793. It was rejected. He went again in 1797. It was beaten. He did it in 1798. It was ignored. He, defe- he introduced a bill in 1799. That was defeated. 1804, defeated. 1805, defeated. And finally, in 1807, passed. Parliament abolished the slave trade in the British Empire because one person had the guts to do what God appointed him to do. Amen.